Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and this week's case is out of Baltimore, Maryland. About a month ago, I was contacted by the family of a young man named Mikey Kudnick, who was only 22 when he was shot and killed in 2017. This case has gotten very little media attention, and the family wants justice. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Mikey Kudnick was born in 1995 to a very big and very blended family. He had five older siblings, his oldest sister Lisa from his father Michael and his first wife, then his brother Billy and sister Stacy from his dad's second marriage, and lastly, two brothers, Michael and Josh, from dad's third marriage to Mikey's own mother, Bobby. Yes, Mikey, whose real name is Michael Kudnick Jr., also had a brother named Michael. Regardless of the siblings having three different mothers, they were all extremely close. Mikey spent a lot of time with his dad's second wife, Margie, or Aunt Margie as he called her. Margie and his dad had remained close, and her house was Mikey's safe place. It was loving, nurturing, and most importantly, it was stable. The area they lived in wasn't the best. The crime rates are through the roof. According to CBS News, Baltimore is the fifth most dangerous city to live in in America. It's a place where hearing gunshots doesn't even make you look up. Margie was honestly more like a mom to Mikey than anything, and he was particularly close with his brother and sister from Margie, Stacy and Billy. He was honestly probably with Margie, Stacy, and Billy more frequently than he was with anybody else in the family. Mikey and Stacy were extremely close. She was 12 when he was born, and as he grew up, she became like a third mom to him. Stacy even threw his first four birthday parties for him, and when he was 11, signed him up for football just to give him a change of pace and scenery. Eventually, Mikey's dad and his own mom, Bobby, split up, but in an effort to make the change as easy on the family as possible, he got a house that split up into two apartments. Mikey's dad moved into the upstairs apartment, while Mikey, his mom, and his two other brothers moved into the downstairs apartment. When Mikey was 16, his 26-year-old brother Josh, who was into music, decided to make a rap video in the backyard of the house. In the video, he's seen holding up a really big gun. Some say it was an AK, some aren't quite sure, but the one thing everyone is sure about is that it was illegal for him to have it. This music video made its way to YouTube, which got the attention of the Baltimore police, and they decided to raid the house. On May 6, 2011, a little after noon, Mikey was home alone, still in bed, when he heard someone or someones bust through the front door. It was the police and they had a warrant, but the warrant wasn't for Mikey. It was for his dad, who owned the house and lived in the apartment upstairs. But according to his sister, when the officers laid eyes on Mikey, they pulled him out of bed and proceeded to brutally beat him. 
He was beaten so badly that he wound up having to be taken to St. Agnes Hospital. When he got there, they realized that the injuries he had were too severe for them, and he was transferred to the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center. Mikey had sustained injuries to almost his entire head, his face, ears, and chin, but he'd also sustained such severe injuries to his back that his spleen ruptured. The rupture required surgery to repair. It's a no-brainer that Mikey's family hired an attorney with plans to sue the Baltimore Police Department. And a week or so after the incident, Mikey's attorney let the city know about their intent on filing the lawsuit. A couple of weeks passed after the notice was given, and Mikey wasn't apologized to. He was instead criminally charged. Somehow, after this 16-year-old boy was mistaken for a grown-ass man in the wrong apartment and beaten until one of his internal organs ruptured, the Baltimore Police Department decided it would be a good idea to charge him with hindering an investigation and failing to obey orders. Hindering it how exactly? By being a 16-year-old asleep in an apartment they weren't even supposed to be in? Or by not understanding why in the hell police officers were beating the shit out of him? Eventually, those charges were dropped, but obviously, the lawsuit moved forward. Mikey sued the Baltimore Police Department for assault, battery, false imprisonment, malicious prosecution, and violating Articles 24 and 26 of the Maryland Declaration of Rights. And he won. I mean, it took five years, but finally, in June of 2016, the department settled and Mikey was granted $67,500. Frankly, I think it should have been more than that, but that's another discussion. While the lawsuit was finally settled, Mikey didn't actually get the money from the settlement until the end of 2016, and his plan with the money wasn't to buy fancy cars or clothes. According to his family, his plan was to use it to get him and his daughter out of Baltimore to give her a better life. You see, while all of this recovery and lawsuit business was going on, Mikey was still out there living his life. At 17, he fell in love with Aunt Margie's best friend's daughter, Taylor. By 18, they had a baby girl together, little May, and May was Mikey's pride and joy. The day she was born, she became the center of Mikey's world. Unfortunately, Mikey and Taylor's relationship was a bit toxic and it didn't last, but that didn't stop him from being the best father he could to their daughter. There were some ups and downs along the custody process, but in the end, Mikey, along with Taylor's mom, shared custody of baby May. To help the family with finances, Mikey fell into selling weed, and while it's not the ideal profession, it worked out really well for him. He was known around the area as the weed guy, and he managed to do it without being affiliated with any gangs. He just hung out with his family, spent time with his daughter, and would take a few calls from people who wanted small amounts of weed and make $50 here and there. And while he seemed to stay out of trouble while running his business, Margie and his sister Stacy still worried about him. Stacy and Mikey would go on these long drives around town and have heart-to-hearts with each other. And in the summer of 2017, on one of these drives, Stacy told him that she had had a nightmare about him getting killed in the neighborhood. The dream felt so real to her that she was bawling as she was telling him about it. 
As scared as this dream made her, Mikey calmly reassured her, saying, Stacy, I'm good, I promise. But it turns out everything wasn't good, and Stacy's dream would become Mikey's reality. Friday, September 22, 2017 was a pretty normal day for Mikey. He spent most of the day, as usual, at Aunt Margie's house just hanging out and spending time with family. Around 9 p.m., she told him that he needed to figure out what he was doing for the rest of the night. It was a Friday, so she figured he probably had plans, but she was heading to bed. So she told him he was more than welcome to stay there for the night, but if he was headed out, he needed to head out now before she locked up. Mikey told her that he was going to leave, said goodnight, and went home just down the road to his house, where he lived with his biological mother, her boyfriend, and some other family members. A few hours later, his nephew's girlfriend, remember most of his siblings are much older than him, sent him a text saying that she wanted some weed. He told her to come pick him up so they could drive back to Margie's house where he could get it for her, and that's exactly what she did. Margie's house was one of 18 row houses on Griffiths Avenue. Between Griffiths Avenue and Grinnolds Avenue and every other street in the area, there's an alley that everyone's houses back up to. The backyards mirror each other and everyone has a small parking pad to park on. She drove him to the alley that backed up to the house and he got out and bent down below an AC unit on the first floor and came back with the weed. No one else knew until later that Mikey even stashed his weed there. He had it wedged between the brick of the house and a small cellar door beneath the window unit, a place no one would have ever think to look. Mikey's cousin's girlfriend gave him $50 for the weed, drove him back down the alley into the front of Margie's house on Griffiths Avenue and dropped him off. But he wasn't planning on going inside. He had another sale scheduled for pickup just down the street. From Margie's house, Mikey walked a block down the road to Tolly Street Park. It's a little park tucked away on a street corner. It has a baseball field, a basketball court, and a small little playground. It's nothing fancy, but it's somewhere to go with something to do. When he got there, he saw three girls from the neighborhood smoking, so he stopped and talked to them for a second. He told him that he was meeting someone there for a sale, but something about the situation made them feel uncomfortable. The girls said that Mikey seemed nervous and even told him not to do it because the whole deal sounded sketchy. But it was too late. A house whose security cameras pointed towards Tolly Street Park caught what looks like a white Lincoln Town car pull up across the street from the park, and just like that, Mikey made his way towards it. The driver's side window was down, and as Mikey got closer, he started talking to someone in the car. That's when one of his neighbors pulled up behind it. The town car was parked where this neighbor usually does, so it looks like Mikey asked the driver of the town car to pull up a bit, and they do. When the neighbor gets out of his car to head inside, he says that him and Mikey locked eyes for what felt like 30 seconds. Mikey and this neighbor weren't close or anything, they just knew each other from the neighborhood, but something about this gaze seemed personal. He got an eerie feeling and his gut told him that something wasn't right. Mikey's sister Stacy says that the neighbor's feeling was so strong that he actually went inside and told his wife about it, that he just made this eerily long eye contact with Mikey from the neighborhood, and that he felt really bad about whatever was going on outside. And his intuition was right. Mikey stood there and talked to the person in the car for a bit before the video catches him reaching for the back driver's side door handle like he's going to open the door, but he doesn't. Instead, he backs up and stands there for a minute. This video plays in Stacy's mind like a movie on repeat, and she says that Mikey's body language looks like he was hesitant to get in. 
Mikey reached for that door handle and backed up two more times before finally getting into the back seat. Once he was inside, the car drove away and one block up the road and stopped at the corner of the alley behind Griffiths. Another security camera covering that corner caught the town car pulling off to the side of the road and Mikey exiting the back passenger side. When he got out, he walked briskly towards what we can assume was Aunt Margie's house to get his weed before walking out of camera view. Fifteen seconds after Mikey got out of the car, two other men got out and started walking in the same direction Mikey did. One guy got out of the front passenger side, and the other got out of the back passenger side. This means that at some point during this short drive, Mikey had to hop over someone in the back seat to make it from the driver's side that he got in through at Tolly Street Park and out of the passenger side that he got out of at the corner of the alley. And if Mikey went through all of that climbing in the back seat of a car, did he really expect that the other two men were going to get out 15 seconds later? If the three of them planned to go get the weed together, they probably would have all gotten out of the car at the same time, right? They wouldn't have had him climb over another grown adult man to get out first, while they then waited 15 seconds to follow him. 15 seconds doesn't sound like a long time, but I want you to pause this episode and count to 15. It's longer than you'd think, and it's long enough for Mikey to have gotten far enough down the road to not have heard them get out of the car. And do we really think Mikey is going to be showing this sale where he stashes his weed? His cousin's girlfriend is one thing, but this was a sale that had third parties feeling uncomfortable. The likelihood of Mikey bringing these guys back to his Aunt Margie's house and displaying where he stashes his weed are slim to none. A few minutes pass before that camera on the corner catches the two men who followed Mikey, hustling but not running, back to the town car, which had inched up to see what was going on down the alley. Mikey was not with them. Around this same time, Mikey's brother Billy was asleep in his room at Margie's house that night, and a gunshot woke him up out of his sleep. Now, hearing gunshots in this area is not common, but Billy distinctly remembers rolling over to look at his phone to check the time, and it was 12.27 a.m. He went back to sleep, assuming it was like any other night where gunshots go off in Baltimore. According to WJLA, Baltimore alone has more than 1,000 shootings per year. But this night is one that Billy feels guilty about to this day, because regardless of the fact that he never could have known... The gunshot that woke him up out of his sleep that night was the gunshot that killed his brother. About five hours later, at 5.25 a.m., one of Margie's neighbors, a man in his early 50s who lived four houses down from her, walked out of his back door to find a young man dead. The top half of his body was laying in his parking pad, and the bottom half was laying in the alley. The neighbor called 911 and police rushed to the scene, taping off the area and drawing a lot of attention to what was going on in the alley behind Griffiths Avenue. When Margie woke up, she noticed the police presence and for some reason got a really bad feeling about it. Mikey usually came by the house early every morning and his nephews had football games that were about to start, which was something he never missed. So she started to panic a little bit. I mean, this couldn't be Mikey. There's no way this is Mikey, but she needed to be sure. She called Billy from downstairs and told him to call Mikey's phone, but he didn't answer. When Mikey didn't answer, Billy called Mikey's dad, who also said that Mikey wasn't there. 
The only other place he would have been was at his mom Bobby's house. So Billy called Bobby, and when she told him that Mikey wasn't there either, the panic really set in. The entire family was concerned at this point, so they all headed over to Margie's house to try and figure out where Mikey was. Once everyone was there, Margie walked out the back to get a better view of what was going on when she saw a detective walk underneath the yellow tape. She took this opportunity to flag him down to see if she could ask him a few questions. The detective walked over and Margie asked him if the victim had long hair, like Mikey. The officer said yes, the victim had long, dark hair. Margie asked him if the victim was wearing glasses, like Mikey did, and the detective confirmed yes, the victim was wearing glasses. At this point, the rest of the family is noticing that Margie is talking to an officer, and they all start coming out to stand by her and hear what the detective is saying. And in one last question, Margie asked the detective if the victim had any tattoos. He responded with, yes, the victim has a tattoo of the Baltimore skyline on his forearm. Margie's knees went weak, and Mikey's brother Billy lost all sense of what was going on around him, and his coffee cup dropped to the ground. In this exact moment that feels like it's frozen in time forever, they knew without a shadow of a doubt that the man shot and killed four houses down was Mikey. The detective read the family's reactions and asked if he could go inside and talk with them. Billy says that everything went blank at that moment. His body and his mind froze. The only thing he could hear was his heart beating in his chest, and the only thing he could see was the image of that detective walking into the back door of his mom's house, and it's etched into his brain forever. Mikey had been shot in the head at close range, but there was no exit wound. Near his body, four houses down, police found a shell casing, but at the back gate of Margie's house, they found a live round, which is a bullet that's never been fired. This likely means that the gun used to kill Mikey either misfired or they racked the gun to make sure that there was a bullet in the chamber, but there already was one in the chamber and that one fell out onto the ground. Either way, if Mikey was bent down under the AC unit getting the weed for this sale, there's a good chance he heard that, which caused him to run for his life. Because he didn't run back towards that car, he ran away from it. The shell casing, the live round, and the bullet in Mikey's head were recovered and sent off for testing, but we know that can take months and months. Mikey had gotten the weed. We know that because he threw it underneath a table in the backyard of one of the houses between Margie's house where they found the live round and the parking pad that he was found in. He would have had to have jumped Margie's fence, which would have slowed him down, ran through a couple of yards, thrown the weed, and was running towards the alley street when he was shot. The fact that the gunshot wound was close range means that they caught up with him. The $50 Mikey had made earlier in the night was still on him, and the weed he threw under the neighbor's table wasn't taken either. So what's the motive? Did they panic and forget, or was killing Mikey the entire plan? And if so, why? Stacy paid attention to who people bought their weed from after Mikey was killed, but said that it didn't seem like any one person took over, that everyone just kind of scrambled and called around to whoever they knew they could get some from. 
That being said, in the process of researching this case, I spoke to someone who has a friend who buys weed in Detroit. This friend went into the city one day to buy some from the guy she always does, but instead of her dealer being there, there was a bunch of people standing around talking about something. When she asked what everyone was talking about, they said, you haven't heard? D was shot. She couldn't believe it and asked what happened, and all she was told was, he was doing too good. Had Mikey simply gotten too good? The only reason we know any of the details of the last moments of Mikey's life through security camera footage is because his sister Stacy hit the streets hard. The second she found out that her baby brother had been murdered, she talked to everyone he knew and figured out that he'd had a sale set for Tolly Park that night. Stacy went down to Tolly Park and looked around for any houses that had cameras pointed towards the park and proceeded to knock on their doors. If they didn't answer, she left a note about what happened and her contact information for them to call her back. The person whose camera caught Mikey in the town car at the park called her as soon as they got home and saw the note and gladly handed over the footage. Knowing where Mikey had been in comparison to where he was found, Stacy went down the street they would have had to have taken to get to the alley behind Griffiths Avenue, and she did the same with everyone on that path. That's how she found the camera that overlooked the corner where the town car had parked by the alley. The very footage that captured Mikey getting out of the car and the two men who followed him 15 seconds later. According to Stacy, there was actually a third house right across the street from Aunt Margie's house who had a camera pointed directly towards her backyard and that AC unit he stashed his weed under. But when police asked the man about it, he told him that his cameras didn't work. However, a neighbor who overheard this conversation pulled Stacy aside and told her that his cameras definitely did work because he'd recently caught someone stealing a bike out of his yard. She even contacted Stacy again to tell her that this neighbor had gone as far as to say there's no way he was handing over that footage to the police. Stacy let the police know about this, but we don't know what, if anything, was ever done. Because Stacy was able to get all of this footage to police, they were able to backtrack that car all the way back to a Royal Farms on Washington Boulevard, less than a mile away from where Mikey was killed. CCTV at the Royal Farms caught the driver getting gas and a man getting out of the passenger seat and hopping into the back seat and a guy from the back seat switching to the passenger seat, meaning there were at least three people in that car besides Mikey that night. The Royal Farms also caught the footage of the driver and one of the other two men walking into the store together, the driver walking in first and holding the door for one of the passengers. Police get the best angles of the two men walking into the store and post a short clip of it to their Facebook page and ask for the public's help in identifying them, and it works. Within days, police know who the driver and one of the passengers are, so they're brought in for questioning. The driver is extremely cooperative. He tells the police that he didn't actually know the men he was driving around that night, that he was just a hack. And I had no idea what a hack was until this case, so let me explain. In Baltimore, there's a hand signal you can put up and a car will stop and drive you around just like a taxi would. The only difference is that a hack isn't employed through a company or run through any safety checks. They work for themselves. It's referred to as taxi without a license. I only know this because I ran a background on the man identified by the driver and it looks like he'd actually been charged with it himself before back in 2006. 
The driver says that he'd borrowed a car that night to run hacks to make some extra money and that he'd picked everyone up in West Baltimore earlier that night, the night of the 22nd. What's even more interesting is that he says he wasn't just driving around two people. According to Stacy, he was driving around three. That means that there was a third passenger in that car that we never saw in any of the CCTV footage that caught them driving around throughout the night. This also means that Mikey had to hop over not one, but two people to get out of the passenger side to start walking towards Margie's house to get that weed. One of the two men who got out of the town car and followed Mikey had to be the trigger man, but who was the one who stayed in the car? Did he not want to be involved, or was he the mastermind behind it all? The car had pulled up to get a better view of the alley after the two men got out to follow Mikey. Did the third person ask the driver to pull up so that he could watch what was about to happen? And if so, does that mean that this third guy knew all along what was going to happen? While all of this is great information for detectives, the driver was just a hack. They went through his phone and he hadn't had any prior contact with the men in the car and didn't know any of their names or where they lived, just where he'd picked them up from and where he'd taken them to. But that's where the community steps in. Through the footage released to the public, tips came in identifying the passenger as well. And when it came time to question him, he denied knowing Mikey at all. But detectives knew that was a lie. Because through Mikey's phone records, they found two weeks worth of correspondence between the two. So they tried again. But this time, the passenger asked for an attorney. In Maryland, if someone asks for an attorney, you have to stop questioning, obviously, but that questioning only has to stop for 30 days. So police tell Mikey's family that they're going to let the 30 days run out and try again. Whether they did or not isn't something that's been shared with them. Five agonizing months pass, but not for nothing. In March of 2018, Baltimore actually organizes a grand jury, hoping to bring down an indictment for the murder of Mikey Kudnick. Every inch of this case is covered front to back, but nothing comes of it. No charges were pressed, and Mikey's family was left wondering what they were supposed to do next. There actually wound up being a second grand jury held, but again, no charges were pressed. The police felt good about both grand jury proceedings and were really confident that the charges were coming, but the second man who followed Mikey down the alley still hasn't been identified, and Mikey's family was told, look, we only get one shot at this. If we charge the passenger we do know, and he points the finger at the guy we haven't identified yet, we might lose this case, and then he walks free forever. So as gut-wrenching as this process has been, Mikey's family wants it done right. They don't just want charges, they want a conviction, and if they have to wait a little longer while the police gather more information, they can do that. His family continues questioning anyone and everyone who knew Mikey, and slowly but surely, people start warming up and talking. The only problem is, is that people are afraid to tell them everything they know. In fact, they've gotten several phone calls urgently telling them to come meet them, that they have something they need to tell them. You can hear the fear and hesitation in their voices, but it sounds like they're ready. But time and time again, when they finally get there, these witnesses freeze in fear and change the subject. Mikey's family knows that there are people in Baltimore and in Mikey's circle who know what happened that night, but they're too afraid to talk. 
A few more months go by of endless questioning and a new normal that no one ever wanted to imagine, a life without Mikey, when the phone rings. It's the detective and he has some news that could change everything. The detective tells the family that during a raid in East Baltimore, completely unrelated to Mikey's case, police seized some weapons. And when tested, one of these weapons came back as a match to the gun that killed Mikey. They found the murder weapon. And not only did they find the murder weapon, they found DNA too. DNA that was a match to someone already in the system. Sounds great, right? Kind of. They know who the DNA belongs to, but they can't figure out how this guy ties back to Mikey or his murder. I mean, he might be able to tell them himself, but they can't find him. After this burst of energy and progress and the new hope that these developments gave Mikey's family, his case just stalls. Since the murder weapon was found and the DNA on the gun was identified, nothing has happened. 2019 went by with virtually no news whatsoever, and by 2020, Stacy decided to step up her own investigation, and she started by offering up $10,000 worth of her own money for any information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Mikey's murder. She knows that someone knows something and hopes that $10,000 is a good enough incentive to start talking. She had flyers made with Mikey's photo, information about his murder, and the $10,000 reward, and put them up anywhere she could, street poles, business windows, anywhere. And in doing so, decided to do a little digging of her own about this identified passenger who's evaded any justice thus far. Stacy figured out where he worked, put on some black pants and a black hoodie, and confidently plastered Mikey's flyer on the outside of that building. Tips continued to come in, but with time were fewer and far between, so Stacy knew she had to do something big. So she bought a fucking billboard. On December 15th of 2020, the billboard went up at the intersection of Washington Boulevard and Caden Avenue, a mile from where Mikey was killed, ensuring that without a shadow of a doubt, everyone in that community knows what happened to him and that they're still seeking justice. Two days after the billboard went up, the local news called Stacy. They wanted to do an interview with her about where the case stands today, and Fox 5's Rael Creighton summed up the family's desperation for justice more perfectly than I ever could. That not getting justice was killing them. The detective who's been in touch with Mikey's family on almost a daily basis for the past three years refuses to retire until this case is solved. And I think it's safe to say that the big mad true crime family is also in this for the long haul as well. Mikey Kudnick Jr. was a friend, a cousin, a brother, an uncle, and a doting father. And for more than three years, his daughter has had to wonder why anyone would take away the man who was supposed to kiss her boo-boos and walk her down the aisle, and why no one has been held accountable for it. If you know anything about what happened that night, 
Who was in the car? Who was the second man who followed Mikey down the alley? Please call the Baltimore Homicide Unit at 410-396-2100. If you'd prefer to stay anonymous, you can contact Metro Crime Stoppers of Maryland at 1-866-756-2587, or you can even reach out to me and I'll forward the information along for you. Every day is a struggle for his family, and the only thing they want is justice for Mikey. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me, and we talk about the mystery that continues to surround this case. If you'd like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, which is today. All episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. Special thank you to Mikey's family who invited me in to dive into his case with them. I also wanted to give a special shout out to Stacy's friend Tiffany. If it wasn't for Tiffany, Stacy wouldn't have been able to get up and get moving to find all of those security videos, and because she had a friend like Tiffany, they were able to do it. It takes a village, and she is the kind of friend we all need in ours. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.